Well, good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you're one of our guests, we're especially glad you're here. Stick around to services. Let us get to know you and get to know us just a bit better. If you would, grab your Bible. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. We continue in our series, Blessed Assurance. John writing to Christians, giving them the assurance of their salvation, and similarly, giving us the assurance that we know God, God knows us. But more than that, as we will see, that God abides in us, and we abide in Him. 1 John 3, let's read the concluding verses of this chapter, beginning in verse 19 and reading through verse 24. 1 John 3, beginning in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given. Let us pray. We are frail children of dust, Father. We are weak. Our hearts, our consciences can be weak. We need your help, Father. The help that only you can provide through Christ, through your Spirit within us. Help us, Father, as we take time to look closely at your word. May it sink deeply into our hearts. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. We know that our hearts are tender, vulnerable, prone to weakness. In fact, uh, we even have a line in one of our songs. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. At the same time, they're complex. Uh, the heart is a, a very complex thing. We, we see this just in Scripture itself. By all the various things that are associated with the heart. Of course, we're talking more than just the muscle in our chest, right? We're talking about that, well, the, everything about us. Every single person, a unique creation of God. And every single heart is itself unique. It's what we sometimes call the real you, the real me. It's it right down to, again, who we really are. And we see here, by what John writes about our heart condemning us, it serves a function as the local deputy in our hearts, our minds, as it were. We're talking about the conscience, something we've been 
working through in our Sunday morning Bible class and, and digging into it in some detail. I invite you, if you've not been a part of those studies, to, to come on down 9.30 every morning, uh, every Sunday morning. The, the heart, it's, again, a, a complex thing. And not only are we inclined, prone to wander, but we're also inclined to buy into certain slogans that maybe catch the ear, right? Let your heart be your guide. But then we're confronted with biblical truth, <laughs> where the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And then we're also reminded that it is God who searches the mind. He's the God who examines the heart, who knows it perfectly, everything about us. What is this that John is writing about in verses 19 through 24 in 1 John chapter 3? And he is explaining how God is greater. He is greater than our heart, and we especially need this truth when our heart condemns us. As we dig into the text here, by this, verse 19 begins, points back to what we talked about last week, verse 18 especially, about loving one another, loving our brother, loving our sister, not merely in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth, with action, in other words. And so John says, by this, by uh, the deeds that we engage in, the conduct that we do, this is how we know that we are of the truth. And that phrase, of the truth, means that you belong to the truth. And there are those who equate it, I think rightly so, with the phrase, of God. Something that we saw earlier in 1 John chapter 3. And, and this is also something that John explains in his gospel. In John chapter 8, verses 46 and 47, being of God. John chapter 18, verse 37, being of the truth. It means you belong to the truth. It means you belong to God. And that is God the Father. You belong to Him. And so, as someone has said, conduct is the clue to paternity. How are you living these days? How's your walk been before God? Are you loving your brothers and sisters as you ought? Well, that conduct, again, is a clue to paternity. It's not the only thing, not the only clue, but it is one, and a very significant one, as John is writing here. Loving one another weighs very heavily into the discussion that he is having in reassuring and assuring these Christians. By this, we shall know. That is, we will know. It's a future tense thing. And so it's as if John is prognosticating a time when there will be a crisis of faith. A time where we'll have some kind of emergency, but we will wonder, am I? Am I really of the truth? Do I really belong to God? Do I really belong to the truth? How can I reassure my heart before Him? Before Him is presence language. And in fact, where this, this text leads is ultimately we're going to talk about prayer and, and asking God for things before Him, face to face, toward Him. Being in His presence, how can I reassure my heart before Him? How can I 
pacify. That's another way that that word reassure can be understood. How can I soothe my conscience when I am conscience-stricken? How can I persuade my conscience that I'm in good relationship with God? When my conscience is raging like a wild beast within me, how can I tranquilize it? Reassuring our hearts in the very presence of God. Well, John explains, verse 20, for, or it could also be translated as because, this is how we reassure our heart, whenever our heart condemns, to condemn means to find fault. To condemn means to accuse. It's the, shouldn't have done that. Our heart condemns us. This is courtroom language. And it corresponds to earlier in the chapter where John had that conversation about righteousness. Righteousness similarly is courtroom language. To be justified, to be declared not guilty. Well, here, condemn means uh, that you are experiencing guilt. And your conscience, your heart is saying guilty. You are standing, as it were, in the high court of heaven. Standing before the supreme judge of all the earth. And you, your heart, your conscience is saying bad form. Shouldn't have done that. It's found fault. What do we do? You ever been there? I'm sure you have. You know about the guilty conscience. And then, and then to think, how can I possibly go into the holy presence of God? How can I be before Him when I know my own heart? I know what I've done. I know how I've fallen short. And your heart is condemning you. Well, notice what John says here. He says, God is greater. God is greater. I mean, just, just that right there alone. He is, he is greater than, right? Which way is it? Is it this way? Greater than? Do I got it? Any math people in here? Greater than, right? I thought about using that as the sermon title. Is that greater than sign, right? But then I just confused myself, I guess. Greater than. God is great. He's greater than anything. In fact, I got, I've got a whole list. And, and maybe someday in the future we'll, we'll work through it. Of all the things that Scripture says God is greater than. But here, just one, God is greater than our heart. He's greater than your heart, greater than my heart. Our heart, which, again, seeks to condemn us, it seeks to act as that deputy. And, and by the way, that's a properly functioning conscience. We're uh, we've been breaking down what happens when conscience goes haywire and it's not functioning properly in, in the Sunday morning Bible class. And I invite you to be a part of that. But the, the properly functioning, functioning, sanctified conscience of the Christian, yeah, it still functions. It's supposed to. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Where it says, I've fallen, I've, I've slipped, I've, I've sinned against God. I've not loved him with a whole, my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I've not been loving my brother or my sister as I ought to. I've been harboring 
uh, hatred even, because anything that's less than love is not love. John's going to talk about here about obeying the commands of, of God, and, and one of the things that is commanded is faith. I, I, sometimes I doubt. You ever been there? Obeying, keeping the commandments of God. I, I don't obey. I disobey sometimes. You been there? You had that guilty conscience? God is greater. And He speaks a better word. And He knows everything. And that alone, it's what's called a, a gnomic truth. It's, it's just a, a general truth. That God knows. This is a, de- a declaration of the omniscience of God. He knows everything from beginning to end. Every single thing. Nothing happens where God goes, Whoa, I didn't see that coming. Well, now what, you know? When, when God determined to, to write Scripture, He didn't go, well, who am I going to get to write the first five books? Eeny, meeny, miny, Moses, right? He knows. He knows everything. And, and this is a thread you can tie all throughout Scripture about the omniscience, the all-knowing uh, characteristic of God. He knows everything. But it's not just that he has full, total knowledge of everything. There's an aspect of he knows everything that has to do with God understanding. He understands everything. That he doesn't just know what happens, he knows why things happen the way that they happen. That, that he knows everything about us as his creatures. Not just does, that he knows that I'll be standing up here on Sunday, November 13th at 11.18 preaching this sermon. But he, under, he knows why you're here and why each of us is here and, and why, why you're thinking what you're thinking right now, whether it's focused on this lesson or elsewhere. He understands. But then there's another layer to this where the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-existing God condescended, stepped down into human history, took on flesh, and lived among us as the man Jesus Christ. That he knows and understands what it means to be human, to be tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it means to be tempted and to be tempted again, but not to sin, not to give in. At least not experientially. He knows the effects of sin. He saw it all around him while he lived and moved and and walked among us for those 33 some odd years. He understands us at a level where, well, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He understands and knows everything about us. He knows our love, again, the context here for loving one another. He knows, he knows our deeds, whether we do love in deed and in truth. He knows our desires and the intentions and inclinations behind the things that we do. He understands also our weaknesses. He understands our frailties and he knows everything. He truly is the best father of all. And so, beloved, 
John says in verse 21, again, a term of endearment that he uses time and again. Our heart condemns us, but God is greater. And he has acted in a profound way. And it's everything that we've been studying through in this book has been leading to this. You see, he did step down into human history. Christ Jesus, God the Son, lived the sinless life that you and I could never live. And then he went to a cross and died on that cross for your sins and my sins in our place, taking on the penalty and punishment for our sins. And by shedding his blood, it is through his blood that we can have the forgiveness of all of our sins, all of those things which condemn us, which find fault and accuse us in our hearts and in our minds, our conscience. It's all forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You see how much greater God is than our heart? And again, this is very specific. It is the heart of the Christian. That's who John is writing to. This is the promise for all of the saints of God, brothers and sisters, for you and for me, that God indeed has acted. And so, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, and, and why is it, it that, that at one moment our conscience properly functioning can condemn us, but then we are reminded of what God has done in the gospel and through Christ, and then the next moment, we no longer, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How, how is it that we can have this? Again, it's because of what God has done. We are free from that internal judgment of conscience. God is greater. And so if our heart does not condemn us, we have that clear conscience. He says, we have confidence before God. Confidence. Or your translation may say boldness. It has to do with freedom. The, the freedom to stand in, again, the very presence of God before Him. That's that face-to-face -face language. That we can stand in the very presence of God, holy God. Not because of anything we've done, because of Christ and His righteousness credited to us. We can have that confidence, that freedom to speak. You see, that's where, again, John is leading us to our prayer life, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. And we can. We can, we can come to God and we can talk to Him about anything. Uh, e even, uh, you know, sometimes things happen in our lives where it, it's not great, it's not good, and, and, and that produces certain feelings within us, and, and we get angry. And, and what happens when... We, we, we uh, ventilate or we manifest that anger in, in prayer. I think of Job. You know, there are times when, when Job is like, I, I just, and I'm dying down here. I just wish he would come down here already. And God's a big God and he can handle that. And he understands everything. He knows what's in back of that too. In the good times, in the bad times, Take your requests to God. We can ask Him whatever we want. We can bring all of our requests to Him. And in fact, uh, the way this is written, uh, it's a present tense thing. You keep on asking. It's the habitual practice of the Christian to continually go into the presence of God. Akin to what Paul writes when he says, pray without ceasing. And so, yes, we, we go before Him and we... Continue to ask, and we receive from Him. Now, we, we know, uh, based not only on our experience, but especially in what's in Scripture, 
that what we receive from God isn't necessarily always what we think we need, right? I mean, you think about the requests that Jesus makes in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, right? That's a request from Jesus. But there is no other way. Hence, he finishes the prayer, nevertheless, your will be done. And so even the Son of God in his prayer life acknowledges that what we receive truly is what we need from God, even though it may not be what we think we need. And that's the difference. We always receive from him what it is that we need. That's the, the habitual experience of, Christian, uh, of the Christian. We keep on asking, He keeps on giving exactly what we need. And again, it's related to the sanctified life. Why is it that, we, that whatever we ask, we receive from Him? Because, verse 22, we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. A life of obedience. Uh, one writer put it this way, obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. The indispensable condition. The, the person who claims to be a Christian and yet is walking around in darkness, to borrow the language of John, can't expect to receive anything from God except correction and discipline for his behavior, her behavior. No, in fact, the, the one who is engaged in sin and wickedness, Scripture says their prayer is an abomination to God. That person should not expect to receive anything. No, it's a sanctified life. It is the life of obedience. And again, everything John has been writing about has been leading to this. That whole discussion about walking in the light as he is in the light. To walk as Jesus walked back in chapter 2. To uh, practice righteousness as we saw earlier in uh, chapter 3. And then especially here in the immediate context of uh, loving one another in deed and in truth, that's part of the obedience that we render to God. That's part of what it means to do what pleases Him. It's what God desires of His children. And so, yes, we keep His commandments. We obey Him. Obedience is crucial. It's vital. He goes on here, verse 23, this is His commandment. This is what God has demanded from all humanity. It's just a singular commandment, but it's fascinating that John mentions two things here, faith and love. <laughs> but it is his, uh, God's commandment. What is it? Number one, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Faith. How, how can God demand faith? How can God demand belief, command it even? Well, when the evidence is so overwhelmingly clear, and it is, He can command it, and He does. Not only is the evidence sufficient and clear in all of the created order that humans are rendered without excuse, but the fact that He has raised His Son from the dead, and that, has, that was the pivotal transitional moment in all of history, again, is equally clear, and he has left clear testimony to this. And so he can demand that we believe in the name, that is the total person and work 
of his son, Jesus Christ. Each one of those words is significant. His, that is the Father's son. And Jesus is the son of the Father. God the Father sent his son into this world. The son here points to the the full deity of Christ. That he is 100% fully God. And he's also Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the man, Jesus. 100% fully human. He is the God-man. Both of those natures in a single person, unmixed, unconfused. It's not that he becomes, you know, a, a half God, half man. No, fully God, fully human in the one person of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one of God, the prophet, priest, and king that God had promised for all those years finally came and died on the cross. Again, this is the full identity of Christ, and we must have faith in that full identity. Nothing lacking. You see, that's what John is writing against in his day, are, are those who are seeking to strip away certain aspects of Jesus. There were those who were saying, well, he didn't really have a body of flesh. He only seemed to have a body of flesh. Well, then you, you've eliminated his humanity, and whoops-a-daisy, there goes the atonement. Because if he only seems to have a body, he only seems to die on the cross, and therefore you only seem to have the forgiveness of sin, though you don't. Ooh, that's serious. And then there are, are others, and, and we even confront this today, who would say, well, he, he's just a wise man. He's not God. But if he's not God, he's not the, the, the sufficient price for atonement. He, as God, cannot satisfy the wrath of God for sin. He's just like any other man dying, any other Jewish man who was crucified in his day. It's a very serious thing when you start removing aspects of the identity of Christ. You start messing with the gospel, which means our faith is futile and we are left in our sins. Praise be to God that God has preserved, again, clear testimony that the Father sent His Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, into this world, and He died on the cross for our sins, and He's the only hope of humanity. And so, yes, we must believe and put our faith and our trust in the name, the full person and work of Christ. And also love one another. <laughs> Again, this is what we, we saw this last week as we tra traced this through. Loving one another, loving the brothers and sisters, loving the church. Again, this is what He has commanded that you love the church. You, you cannot claim to love Christ while slighting his bride. I understand. I get it. The church is full of imperfect people, and the, the target's right here on me first. Imperfect sinner. And yet, love one another. And, and we, we had an extended discussion about that uh, last week. Just as he commanded, in fact... Um, about a dozen times, uh, maybe even more than that now that I think about it, over a dozen times that just in the New Testament, you have the command, love one another. It goes all the way back to Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 34, 35. Uh, he mentions it again in chapter 15, verse 12, verse 17 of John's gospel. Uh, we've already come across it a few times in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, 3, verse 11. We'll see it again in 4, verse 7. And that's just in John's writing. Peter talks about it. Paul writes about it. It's all over the New Testament. Love one another. 
You know, for God to say something one time is sufficient. When he repeats it, you better pay attention. When he says it over a dozen times, there's some weight here. We better, we better spend some time focused on this and checking our own hearts when it comes to loving the brethren and the sistren too. You understand, right? <laughs> loving our siblings. Now, whoever keeps his commands, the one keeping his commands, this is the lifestyle, the habitual practice of the Christian that's in view here. Keeping the, and that's, we'll see when we get to chapter 5. His commandments are not burdensome, not for, again, the sanctified heart. It's the, the unbeliever. It's the, it's the world who looks at what God has said and says, I don't want that. That's too heavy a burden. But Jesus himself says, no, my, my burden's actually light. You've got to confuse. You're, you're suppressing that truth in your unrighteousness. And, and specifically, what commandments are in view here? Well, we just read verse 23. Faith, all right, love. The continued habitual obedience to the commandments of God well, that one abides in God and God in him. And again, it's a present tense thing. You, you keep on abiding. You keep on dwelling in God. You remain in him. And God in you. Uh, we'll, we'll, again, we'll run across this when we get to chapter 4 and verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. God lives in us. He abides in us. He resides in us. He dwells in us right now. And, and it's, it's not only a collective thing. Certainly in the church, God dwells. But this is an individual thing. The one keeping the commandments of God abides in God, and God in him or her. You understand, you, my brother, my sister... God has taken up residence in you. He dwells in you. Abiding, this is fellowship language as well. Uh, and John has written extensively about fellowshipping with God. Another word for that is communion. And indeed, it is a sweet communion to know that God is in us. And by this, and I believe this is pointing forward to what he's going to write here in just a moment about the Spirit. By this, we know that He abides in us. The knowledge here comes by uh, experience. It's an experiential type of knowledge. It comes through uh, seeing and, and hearing and investigating. And so you think about that. We, as Christians, we know that God abides in us. How? Based on our lives. Our lives have been changed. Everything about it. We, we, we're not the same since we came in contact with Christ, since God became our Father, since we were converted to the faith, we can't live like we once did. And that manifests itself. But notice, this is how we know, by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the first mention in John, uh, John's epistle of the Spirit. The Spirit's mentioned in the Gospel of John, and, and as I mentioned before, uh, this epistle is intended to be read in, uh, as, as commentary on the gospel, uh, read uh, in, in concert with it. But this is the first direct mention of the Holy Spirit th thus far. But I want you to see, again, the, the, the Trinitarian nature of this, where we are to believe 
in the name of His, the Father's, Son, and we have the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the triune God who abides in us. The Spirit whom He has given us. And I believe that is when we were converted. Uh, we, we know, Acts 2.38 tells us that uh, when we uh, repent and we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, this, of, of our sins, we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit comes and takes up residence in us now that we are a fit vessel, having all of our sins forgiven, washed away by the blood of Christ. Now the, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in a holy dwelling. And, and our bodies are, are now temples for the Holy Spirit. This is Paul. But the Spirit whom he has given. Um, let me just briefly, I, th- I think I can do this. In, in our fellowship, in, in Churches of Christ, there has been discussion historically about the nature of the indwelling of the Spirit. There are those who say that the Holy Spirit does not personally dwell within us, but rather the Holy Spirit indwells us through the medium of the Word. You ever hear this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a prevalent view. Uh, this is a view. I, I grew up in a church that believed that it is through the Word, through the medium of the Word, that the Holy Spirit lives within us. It's not The Holy Spirit does not personally dwell within us. One of the arguments that is made is that if the Holy Spirit personally dwelt within us, well, then that, to that degree, we would ourselves be God. If not, why not? Literally, that's a quote <laughs> uh, from one of our brothers who has written a book on the uh, subject of the Holy Spirit. Well, in response to our dear brother, I would say, well, there's a couple of ways of tackling this. Number one, um, let's talk about the incarnation. When God the Son took on flesh, was he personally in that flesh? And did that flesh, that human body, did it become God? Was it deified? Did he walk around glowing on the seashores of sands, the, the sands of Galilee? No. Now, granted, it is a glorified body now, but there's that. But then I would also point to, well, Christ in the Gospel of John. You know, one of the things that Jesus says in the Gospel of John is, Father, you abide in me and I abide in you. So there is this interpersonal, mutual, indwelling, in-being within the triune God. By the logic of our dear brother, that would mean, then, that the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father. If not, why not? I haven't gotten a good answer for that. No, this kind of argumentation, it it's actually kind of specious. It betrays a a faulty understanding of the triune nature of God, a faulty understanding of the incarnation. And what happens is it, it also betrays a, a faulty understanding of the creator-creature distinction. You understand that, that when we enter into glory, that doesn't mean we become gods. 
right? Our, our bodies are glorified. We become glorified humans, but we still maintain our creatureliness. And that's the same thing when it comes to the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit living within us. The pots still remain pots, and the potter remains the potter. And there's, there's no confusion there. And this is why I am a firm believer that, yes, the Holy Spirit does personally indwell every single believer. The Holy Spirit really does live within you. Christianity is a supernatural religion. And it, it, it's beyond just the natural, beyond just the material, to the unseen realm. And God, the Holy Spirit, really does live within us. Uh, there's one more. Um, John writes to these Christians in the first century. And by my, the way I understand the writing of John, Revelation, probably the last book he wrote. So they don't have a completed canon yet. Right? It just it hasn't been written. And so would they have understood John when he says, the Holy Spirit whom God has given us, and God abiding in us, would they have understood, oh yeah, that means that he indwells us indirectly through the medium of the word which has yet to be completed. No, I, I don't think so. I don't think they would have understood it that way. And so therefore, why are we reading that into the text? That sounds to me not like pulling from the text what it means, exegesis, but eisegesis, forcing our preconceived and even philosophical notions into the text. Well, that was all for free. Anyway. If I confess and I believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, if I am converted, if I am obedient to the gospel, God's Holy Spirit lives within me, and He is the Holy Helper. He helps us. He produces fruit within us. He... Uh, all the things that Paul talks about, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, general, self-control, all those things. The Holy Spirit is producing those things in our lives. And we need that help. We can't do it on our own. And this is why this is such good news and such reassurance to at least my heart. Which is the same as yours. Just as vulnerable, prone to find fault in myself prone to accuse myself of these things. Now granted, when there is fault, repent. That's what's in order. But when those thoughts come creeping back, when, when my shortcomings continue to plague me, and when our hearts condemn us, brothers and sisters, God is greater. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is greater. Let us pray. Your greatness is it's unfathomable, Father. We are staggered 
by just how great you are. It brings into bold relief just how weak and frail and feeble we really are. And yet we rejoice in knowing that you are so much greater than our hearts. We rejoice in knowing what you have accomplished in Christ Jesus on our behalf. And we rejoice and give you thanks that your Holy Spirit dwells within us. We thank you for giving us of yourself. As we abide in you and you in us, may our communion with you deepen, strengthen, and grow sweeter day by day. We pray all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen.